Chapter 9, Constantinople II, The Fallacy of Simplicity An ancient and persistent danger is the fallacy of simplicity. There is a pronounced resentment on the part of very many men against knowledge that is beyond their capacity. As a result, wherever a democratic impulse governs theology, it seeks the lowest common denominator. The ignorant and foolish piously bleat for the simple old-time gospel, when the reality is that their simple-minded gospel is a modern invention. While certain basic doctrines of the Bible are uncomplicated ones, the Bible as a whole is not a simple book, and it gives us no warrant for passing over its complexities to dwell on its simplicities, because both aspects are inseparably one. No one can call the prophet simple reading, nor the epistles of Paul elementary and the two together make up a major portion of the Bible, and they do not exhaust its complexity. The demand for simplicity is usually a demand for perversion, and it is not surprising, therefore, that the gospel of a democratic era is also a perverted one. The demand for simplicity is not only a demand for perversion, but it is also a demand for suicide, and the people, church, or institution which pursue it have charted a course for assured death. Bark has rightly called attention to a critical failure of the Roman mentality. They confuse simplicity with strength, as if one could not exist without the other. Socialism is an excellent example of the fallacy of simplicity. As society grows more complex, it accordingly needs more decentralization and specialization. The greater the complexity of a society, the greater its need for free growth in terms of its increasingly refined and specialized abilities. The socialist, however, recognizes only one valid and independent form of specialization, that of the status controllers or managers. His answer to social complexity is an imposed simplicity, an enforced regression to household economy. In a simple frontier household, at brief periods in history, and out of necessity, one man assumed most of the major economic functions and made the family an independent world. Such a condition has been infrequent and also primitive. Specialization means the freedom to pursue one's chosen calling without the necessity of performing countless tasks which others are best suited. Socialism, the political and economic fallacy of simplicity, is also by its nature suicidal. The first four ecumenical councils faithfully declared the complexity of the biblical faith with respect to certain doctrines. Then, as now intellectually lazy persons resented any doctrine which was beyond their intelligence, the doctrines of the faith had to be reduced to the level of man's sloth. The basic work had been done by the first four councils. The fifth council, the second council of Constantinople, AD 553, had to contend with both the civil and religious hostility to and lack of comprehension of the complexities of Christian doctrine. Justinian I, an able and well-intentioned emperor, called the council in the hope that it would smooth over differences between contending theological schools and thereby unify the empire religiously. The council, by its emphasis on the details of theological complexities, only served to divide the empire. The reaction to the council was on the whole not favorable then, and it was rather grudgingly accepted, and the attitude of Christian sense has been one of neglect or weariness with its details. The sentence of the council stated the council's strong sense of responsibility to speak out against impiety.
our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, as we learn from the parable in the gospel, distributes talents to each man according to his ability, and at the fitting time demands an account of the work done by every man. And if he to whom but one talent has been committed is condemned because he has not worked with it but only kept it without loss, to how much greater and more horrible judgment must he be subject who not only is negligent concerning himself, but even places a stumbling block and cause of offense in the way of others. Since it is manifest to all the faithful that whenever any question arises concerning the faith, not only the impious man himself is condemned, but also he who, when he has the power to correct impiety in others, neglects to do so. We therefore, to whom it has been committed to rule the church of the Lord, fearing the curse which hangs over those who negligently perform the Lord's work, hasten to preserve the good seed of faith, pure from the terrors of impiety which are being sown by the enemy. The emperor might expect peace and unity, but the council was determined to stand in its terms of the truth. The emperor, basically a devout man, did not try to set aside the council's work. To a measure, Justinian's edict preceding the council had pointed out its task by calling for a condemnation of the works of Theodore of Mopsuestia, master of Nestorius, Theodoret of Cyrus, and the letter of Ibius of Edessa. Justinian's hope was that a condemnation of the theology of the school of Antioch would please the Monophysites, who now commanded the school of Alexandria. The council did condemn the Antiochian theology, but without retreating from Chalcedon's stand, so that both Antioch and Alexandria were now cut off from the Orthodox faith. Theodore of Mopsuestia, around AD 350-428, held to a semi-Pelagian doctrine of man. For him, sin was the consequence of mortality, not its cause, so that finitude was man's basic problem and the root of his sin and fall. Man the sinner has free will and is self-determining, so that Christ's role as Savior is not the determinative factor in the sinner's life. Grace is not prevenient, but cooperating, that is, man saves himself with God's cooperation. For Theodore of Mopsuestia, any confusion of the two natures of Christ was unthinkable, but his reasons were not orthodox. For him, there was no substantial union between God and man in the Incarnation, but rather a voluntary one, which began with conception. The indwelling of God in Christ was by good will, not by substance, nor by operation. There were strong elements of universalism in Theodore of Mopsuestia's thought, and the fullness of salvation for him meant the fullness of ultimate union with God. His thinking represented a milder version of that philosophy which governed the school of Antioch. The Monophysites felt towards these Antiochene ideas as Stalin felt towards Trotsky. The hatred was bitter and intense, but it was nonetheless a family quarrel. The Monophysites asserted, as their name indicated, the one nature of Christ. For them, as Rainey pointed out, Christ is of two natures, but not in two natures. Ostensibly, they were protecting the doctrine of God and Christ's deity. But as Rainey noted, what was this nature, which was neither divine nature simply nor human nature simply? Christ was seen as possessing a single nature, which was neither the simple divine nature nor the simple humanity. This brought Christ perilously close to the position of Arius's Christology.
Either the Christ of Monophysite thought was neither God nor man, but an intermediate figure, or else he was a God into whose being humanity had been absorbed. In either case, the confusion of the two natures was paramount. In the one case, Jesus Christ was neither co-substantial with God or man, and in the other, man becomes consubstantial with God. One monophysite sect, the Apthotharctosate, held that the body of Jesus Christ was made incorruptible, not by virtue of the resurrection, but by the union with the divine nature, i.e. by the communication of the properties of the divine nature to the human nature. In the modern era, monophysite thinking has been in evidence in Henry Ward Beecher's Life of Christ, and in Swedenborgianism and the humanism in both cases is clearly in evidence. These were the problems facing the Second Council of Constantinople. Schaff referred to this council as a mere supplement to the Third and Fourth. Supplements are, however, often both necessary and important. The basic faith with respect to the Trinity had been defined. Errors now had to be corrected and prevented. The council issued 14 anathemas. Although the traces of the doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity are not accepted by all Orthodox Protestants, this council has been accepted by all Orthodox branches of the Church. The first anathema declared, If anyone does not confess that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost have one nature or essence, one power and might, or does not confess, the co-essential consubstantial, trinity, one godhead, and three hypostases, or persons, worshipped, let him be anathema. For there is one God and Father of whom are all things, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and one Holy Spirit, in whom are all things. This is simply an insistence on the orthodox doctrine of the trinity. The trinity is not one God if the three persons are not equal and equally of one nature, power, and might. Variations from the Orthodox doctrine result in tritheism and Unitarianism. There is no possibility of survival for the Church as a Christian body if departures from Trinitarianism are not anathematized. 2. If anyone does not confess that there are two births of God the Word, the one from eternity of the Father, out of time and incorporeal, and the other in the last days, in that he came down from heaven, and was made flesh of the holy, glorious God-bearer, and ever-Virgin Mary, and was born of her, let him be anathema. Jesus Christ, as very God, is therefore eternally existent, out of time, and incorporeal, eternally the begotten of the Father, and one God with him. In his humanity, Jesus Christ is very man of very man, born of the Virgin Mary, the reality of his humanity and deity is declared by this statement. 3. If anyone says that the word of God who worked miracles is one, and that Christ who suffered is another, or says that God the word is become the same as the Christ who was born of a woman, or is in him as one is in another, and that it is not one and the same, our Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God, who became flesh and man, and that the miracles which he wrought and the sufferings which he voluntarily endured in the flesh are not his, let him be anathema. This statement underscores both Chalcedon and Ephesus. Because the Incarnation was real, and the union of the two natures a true union, it is impossible to treat Christ as two persons, ascribing certain acts to the divine nature and others to the human nature. 
There are two natures but one person, and to ascribe the miracles and the suffering to any but that one person, Jesus Christ, is to deny the Incarnation. The statement clearly is hostile to Nestorian union of the two natures, whereby the person of God and the person of Jesus remain distinct. But it is clearly hostile also to a monophysite denial of the humanity after the Incarnation. The assumption is that there are two natures in the one person in perfect union. To see, as some scholars have, attempts at conciliation with the monophysites in these anathemas is groundless. Their cutting edge strikes in both directions. The confusion and absorption of the humanity into the Godhead is condemned. Those who say that God, the Word, is become the same as the Christ, who is born of a woman, or is in him as one is in another, are condemned. 4. If anyone says that the union of God the Word with man has taken place only by grace, or by operation, or by equality of honor and distinction, or by a carrying up and condition, or by power, or by good pleasure, as though God the Word were pleased with man, from its seeming well and good to him concerning him, as the raving Theodore says, or that it has taken place through the sameness of name, according to which the Nestorians call God the Word Jesus, Son, and Christ, and so name the man separately Christ and Son, and so clearly speak of two persons, and hypocritically speak of one person and of one Christ, only according to designation and honor, and dignity and worship. But if any one does not confess that the union of God, the Word, with the flesh, enlivened by a reasonable and thinking soul, according to synthesis, combination, or according to hypostasis, as the Holy Father said, and that therefore there is only one person, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the Holy Trinity, let him be anathema. As, however, the word union, enosis, is taken in different senses, those who follow the impiety of Apollinarius and Eutyches, assuming a disappearance of the natures which come together, teach a union by confusion, whilst the adherents of Nestorius and Theodore, rejoicing in the separation, introduce a merely relative union. The Holy Church of God, on the contrary, rejecting the impiety of both heresies, confesses the union of God the Word with the flesh by a combination, i.e. personally. For the union by combination, synthesis, not only preserves in regard to the mysteries of Christ that which was come together, the two natures, unconfused, but allows of no separation of the persons. This statement again anathematizes both Nestorians and Monophysites. The Incarnation is a true union, without confusion or change, of the two natures in one person, Jesus Christ. To speak of the union as merely a moral identification or a union of activity or operation is to deny the Incarnation. Eutyches, specifically named, was a forerunner of monophysite thought. His teaching and all teachings declaring a disappearance of one nature after the union or their confusion are condemned. Both Nestorianism and Monophytism are heresies. This anathema denounces those who hypocritically speak of one person and of Christ, but in actuality clearly speak of two persons. 5. 
If anyone so understands the expression, one hypostasis of our Lord Jesus Christ, that thereby is meant the designation of the union of many hypostases, and hereby undertakes to introduce into the mystery of Christ two hypostases, or two persons, and often having introduced two persons, speaks of one person according to dignity, honor, and worship, as Theodore and Nestorius in their madness maintained, and if any one slanders the Holy Synod in Chalcedon, as the Though it had used the expression one hypostasis in this impious sense, and does not confess that the word of God was personally united with flesh, and that therefore there is only one hypostasis or one person, as also the Holy Synod in Chalcedon confessed, one hypostasis of our Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. For the Holy Trinity, when God the Word, one of the Holy Trinity, was incarnate, did not suffer the addition of a person or hypostasis. Again, the condemnation cuts both ways, and Chalcedon's definition is made the test of orthodoxy. The way to unity of monophysite and orthodox is through the submission of all to Chalcedon. This was an anathema hardly likely to conciliate monophysites, but conciliation was not sought at the price of truth. 6. If anyone says that the holy, glorious, ever-Virgin Mary is called God-bearer by abuse and not truly, or by analogy, as though a mere man were born of her, and not as though God the Word were incarnate of her, but that the birth of a man were connected with God the Word, because he was united with the man born, and if anyone slanders the holy synod of Chalcedon, as though in accordance with this impious opinion held by Theodore, it called the Virgin God-bearer, or if anyone calls her man-bearer or Christ-bearer, as though Christ were not God and does not confess her as God-bearer in the proper sense and in truth, because God the Word, who was begotten of the Father before all worlds, was incarnate of her in the last days, and does not confess that in this pious sense the Holy Synod of Chalcedon confessed her to be God-bearer, let him be anathema. Again, the reality of the Incarnation is insisted upon as against Nestorianism and Theodore of Mopsuestia. Nestorianism having been condemned, the humanist had withdrawn to the as-yet-condemned position of Theodore for a safe haven. The council now condemned the root and the branch alike. Attempts to read Chalcedon in terms of Theodore were also condemned. When Chalcedon and the earlier councils spoke of Mary as Theotokos, they meant it in terms of Orthodox Christology, not in terms of a voluntary union. 7. If anyone speaking of the two natures did not confess that he acknowledges in the Godhead and manhood the one Lord Jesus Christ, so that by this lie signifies the difference of natures of which the unspeakable union takes place without confusion, without the nature of the word being changed into that of the flesh, nor that of the flesh into the nature of the word, for each remains what it was in nature after the personal union had taken place, or who takes that expression in reference to the mystery of Christ in the sense of a separation into parts, or confessing the two natures in relation to the one Lord Jesus, the incarnate Word of God, takes the differences of these of which he was composed, but which is not destroyed by the union, for he is one of both, through one both, takes this difference not as an abstraction, but uses the duality in order to separate the natures and to make them separate persons, hypostasis, let him be anathema. 
The sixth anathema spoke of those who twist the orthodox doctrine and speak of the incarnate one as though Christ were not God. In the seventh anathema, some more of these stratagems are cited, and they are answered in terms of Chalcedon. The basic result of the heresies was the denial of the incarnation. Either the two natures were so divided that no true union took place, but rather only a voluntary association, or else the two natures were confused and the humanity absorbed into the divinity. The practical and philosophical result of both Nestorianism and Monophytism was the apotheosis of man. Both represented the triumph of pagan humanism and of imperial theology. Western liberty is the product of Chalcedonian Christology and of the Trinitarianism of the Athanasian Creed. Explicit or implicit humanism will attempt either to separate the man Jesus from the person of God, except by a voluntary association open to all, or to give him a divinity which is open to all men. Upon all such, the anathema of the council stands. 8. If anyone does not take the expressions of two natures, the Godhead and the manhood, the union took place, or the one incarnate nature of the word, as the Holy Fathers taught, that from the divine nature and the human personal union having taken place, one Christ was constituted, but endeavors by such expressions to bring in one nature or essence of the Godhead and manhood of Christ, let him be anathema. For when we say that the only begotten word was personally united, we do not say that a confusion of the natures with each other has taken place, but rather we think that whilst each nature remains what it is, the word has been united with the flesh. Therefore also this is one Christ, God and man, the same who is of one substance with the Father as to his Godhead, and of one substance with us as to his manhood. For the church of God equally condemns and anathematizes those who separate and cut asunder the mystery of the divine economy of Christ and those who confess it. Again, Chalcedon is stressed and the monophysite confusion of natures is condemned. The sophisticated doctrines of the monophysites could not conceal their basically Hellenistic and humanistic thrust. For Athanasian and Chalcedonian creedalism, the true universal is the triune God. By introducing a confusion of natures into the person of Christ, humanity is made one with the universals, with the ultimate realities of the universe. Humanity thereby becomes its own God. Sovereignty is transferred from God to man, and salvation also becomes more and more man's work in that man is now the new universal. The monophysite Coptic liturgy had already come to a position of celebrating man as well as God. Thus, an earlier hymn, while still paying its respects to the holy, equal trinity, finds the congregation singing, In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the holy, equal trinity, worthy, 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 the holy Virgin Mary, worthy, 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 thy servants the Christians. The Reformation doctrines of justification, predestination, and sovereign grace are simply the logical and necessary concomitant of Chalcedon and of the Athanasian Creed, and all these together simply the biblical faith. Humanism makes man the new universal, and the state becomes the unified God on earth. As a result, while the form of Christian doctrine can be retained, the heart of that doctrine can be negated by introducing man into the Godhead and by making man the new universal.
when scholasticism reintroduced Aristotle's humanism into Western history, the consequence was the decline of Orthodox Christianity and its Trinitarian answer to the problem of the one and the many and universals. The universals of scholasticism became the Hellenic ideas or forms, and the Trinity itself was reevaluated in terms of these forms to become substance, the Father, structure, the Son, and process, the Spirit, so that the Trinity became simply the common being of the universe analyzed into its aspects. The universals thus had no small eminence, and the struggle of medieval Europe came increasingly to be a contest between claimants to the title of concrete universal, i.e. the imminent expression of ultimate order, church, state, and university alike claimed supremacy and sovereignty, as did the anarchaic and ultimate individual of such groups as the Adamites and other movements of the day. The mystics also claim the same realization of the universal in their experience. Any and every departure from Ephesus and Chalcedon and from the Athanasian Creed was a venture into humanism and the supplanting of God by man. 9. If anyone says that Christ is to be worshipped in two natures, by which two kinds of worship are introduced, the one for God, the Word, the other for the man, or if anyone, by taking away the flesh, or by confusion of the Godhead and manhood, or preserving only one nature or essence of those which are united, thus worships Christ, and does not worship God made flesh together with his flesh with one worship, as the Church of God received from the beginning, let him be anathema. In the ninth anathema, several forms of perversion of the faith of Chalcedon are cited and condemned. First, some worshipped both natures of Christ, his humanity as well as his deity, thereby introducing man-worship into Christianity in the name of obedience to the faith. Second, others confused the two natures and therefore worshipped man in this manner and introduced humanity into the nature of the Godhead. Third, still others reduced the two natures to one by absorption and thus again destroyed the biblical distinction between God and man and their differing beings. The bridge between the uncreated being of God and the created being of man was uniquely bridged without confusion in Jesus Christ. Attempts to make the bridge a natural one by confusion or absorption have as their goal and meaning the obliteration of the distinction between God and man. This obliteration serves to make man his own God. 10. If anyone does not confess that our Lord Jesus Christ crucified in the flesh is true God and Lord of glory and one of the Holy Trinity, let him be anathema. God can be eliminated from a philosophy or religion not only by a confusion with humanity, so that God and man become either basically or potentially one, but also by a radical and total isolation and separation from one another. If God is made the Holy Other, a hidden God who does not reveal himself, as for Arianism and Neo-Orthodoxy, he ceases to be God over man. A hidden God who has not spoken, nor can speak, who has no revelation, nor an infallible word, must surrender the universe by default to man. Man at least speaks. Man at least has some kind of word, so that speaking man replaced the silent God as the Lord of being. Denials of the reality of the Incarnation and the reality of Christ's crucifixion, while ostensibly protecting God from the world of mutability and passion, were in actuality protecting man from interference by God. 
If the crucified and risen Christ is simply a remarkable man, then he portends a new world of potentiality for man as the Lord of creation. If this crucified and risen Christ be very God of very God, as well as very man of very man, then man is under God's government and decrees as a creature. 11. If anyone does not anathematize Arius, Eunomius, Macedonius, Apollinaris, Nestorius, Eutyches, and Origen, together with their impious writings and all other heretics condemned and anathematized by the Catholic and Apostolic Church and by the four holy synods already mentioned, together with those who have been or are of the same mind with the heretics mentioned and who remain till the end in their impiety, let him be anathema. It is not sufficient to be against heresy. One must also be against heretics. The notion that one can hate sin and love the sinner is a contradiction. Can one hate theft and love the thief who robbed him, or hate murder but love the murderer of his family, or hate rape but love the rapist who raped his loved ones? True, this idea that it can be done is commonplace, but it is an evidence of moral degeneracy. The council named various heretics and condemned them, and required all orthodox believers to unite in their condemnation. Those who refuse to condemn the heretics are themselves guilty of impiety and are anathema. Either men separate from heresy and heretics in terms of the faith, or they are separated from the faith and from the faithful. 12. If anyone defends the impious Theodore of Mopsuestia, who says, A. God, the Word, is one, and another is Christ, who was troubled with sufferings of the soul and desires of the flesh, and who by degrees raised himself from that which was more imperfect, and by progress and good works and by his way of life became blameless, and further, that as mere man he was baptized into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, and through baptism received the grace of the Holy Spirit, and was deemed worthy of sonship, and was worshipped with reference to the person of God the Word, like the image of an emperor, and that only after the resurrection he became unchangeable in his thoughts and completely sinless, and be, again, as the same impious Theodore says, the union of God the Word with Christ was of such a nature as the apostle says there is between man and wife, the two shall become one flesh, and see, among other blasphemies, dared to say that when the Lord, after the resurrection, breathed upon his disciples, saying, Receive the Holy Ghost, he did not give them the Holy Ghost, but only breathed upon them as a sign. D. And again, that the confession of Thomas on touching the hands and the side of the Lord after the resurrection, my Lord and my God, was not spoken concerning Christ by Thomas, but that, astonished at the miracle of the resurrection, Thomas praised God who raised Christ. E. And what is still worse in his exposition of the Acts of the Apostles, Theodore compares Christ with Plato, Manichaeus, Epicurus, and Marcion, and says that, as each of these devised his own doctrine and gave to his disciples the name of Platonist, Manichaeans, Epicureans, and Marcionists, in the same manner when Christ also devised a doctrine after him, they were called Christians, 
If anyone, then, defends the forenamed most impious Theodore and his impious writings in which he poured out the above-mentioned and other countless blasphemies against the great God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and does not anathematize him and his impious writings, and all who adhere to him or defend him or say that he has given an orthodox interpretation or who have written in defense of him, and his impious writings, and who think or have ever thought the same, and remain to the end in this heresy, let him be anathema. In analyzing Theodore of Mopsuestia's teachings, the council placed its finger clearly on its basic humanism. Jesus Christ was reduced to the ranks of one teacher among many, and he was at best a great man, who by moral excellence became an image or icon of God, even as the images of an emperor represent the emperor and are worshipped. This reference, like the image of an emperor, is significant, in that the image of the emperors again became central with the iconoclastic controversy. It is also significant in that an image or icon is not the substance, the emperor or the God depicted is. Christ as the icon of the Father in this sense is one possible icon or image among many and one possible teacher among many. Thus, in the name of worshiping Christ as the image of the Father, those who were using Theodore of Mopsuestia's terminology to shield their Nestorianism were actually demoting Christ even as they worshiped him. When the door is open to many images and many teachers, ostensibly all are exalted, but in actuality all are demoted, in that truth becomes the property of none. An unrevealed God means an unrevealed truth, and an unrevealed God is also a possibly non-existent God and a non-existent truth. Man then becomes his own way, truth, and life, and objective truth is replaced by subjective truth. 13. If anyone defends the impious writings of Theodoret, which are directed against the true faith, and against the first and holy synod of Ephesus, and against the holy Cyril, and his twelve chapters, and defends all that he wrote in defense of Theodore and Nestorius, the impious ones, and others who think the like with those named, with Theodore and Nestorius, and receive them and their impiety, and for their sakes call the teachers of the church impious, who maintain and confess the hypostatic union of God the Word, and if he does not anathematize the impious writings named, and those who taught and think the like, and all who have written against the true faith, or the holy Cyril, and his twelve chapters, and have persevered in such impiety, let him be anathema. The Ibis referred to was Bishop of Edessa in Syria from 435 to 457. Ibis translated the works of Theodore of Mopsuestia into the Syriac and distributed them extensively throughout Persia and Syria. He was accused of Nestorianism and twice acquitted, but the robber council of Ephesus 449 deposed him. Chalcedon re-established Ibis after examination, as it did Theodoret, also after Theodoret finally consented to the anathemas against Nestorius. The second council of Constantinople avoided condemning Theodoret and Ibis, but condemned simply their writings which taught specific errors. In Ibis's case, the letter in question is cited as one which Ibis is said to have written, implying doubt. The letter contains such statements as this, Those who maintain that the Word was incarnate and made man are heretics and Apollinarians. Ibis's position apart from his letter was suspect. 
the Second Council of Constantinople thus ably defended the work of Ephesus and Chalcedon. It represented no further development, but it did represent an able defense of the faith, and its work was needed. It is not enough in dealing with a present danger to avoid it by citing the fact that someone dealt with the matter in the past. If an enemy attacks today, the enemy must be fought today, but without a surrender of past victories. A church cannot say, if men arise within its ranks denying the infallibility of Scripture, that it cannot deal with these men today because the confession dealt with the matter a few centuries ago. Rather, it must affirm the old confession by a new condemnation of heretics. This the Second Council of Constantinople did. The Council, moreover, was unafraid of complexity and refinement of doctrine. It drew the line sharply because the alternative was to erase or at least to blur the line between Christianity and humanism. A retreat toward simplicity of faith is a retreat into death. The scorn men reserve for those whose teachings are difficult is no evidence of character, but it is in their throats the death rattle of a church and culture. The churches today which draw the line sharply are small and lonely congregations, growing only with difficulty, whereas the modernists and Arminians who erase the line of offense and introduce humanism into the church seem to flourish. But their growth is simply the growth of corruption, and their only light the phosphorescence of decay. 